0: How do we organize human societies to maximize the good stuff and minimize the bad stuff? We have to go back to the simple insight that what you assume in each other is what you get out of each other. If you believe that most people are fundamentally selfish, then you'll start designing your whole society around that idea.
1: If we tell this story that you can't trust anybody, that increases transaction costs in society. The more trusting people are, the lower the cost of running that economy and the better off everybody is.
2: From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, where we explore everything you wished you'd learn in Econ 101. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures.
1: I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic
2: Ventures. So Goldie, you know, one of the things that I think is just so wrong about neoclassical economics, and we've talked about this a million times, is the behavior model, homo economicus, which asserts that people are perfectly, reliably selfish, and that you know we can base all our thinking and our models on that. And the fundamental problem with that isn't that it's just descriptive, it's also prescriptive in the sense that if you teach people that people are fundamentally selfish, and then they look around the world at all of the prosperity in it, then they must conclude that selfishness is the cause of prosperity. And the more selfish we are, the more prosperity we create. And that view has radically affected our culture, And our policy and our politics, and is at the core of all a lot of the neoliberal stuff that we hate the most.
1: Right, anything goes, Nick. You know, it's uh, it's the invisible hand.
2: It is. It is. And then our friend, uh, the Dutch historian Rutger Bregman, who thinks in ways very similar to us, is out with a really cool new book called "Humankind," that basically explores this myth. That people are reliably selfish and he makes this really cool new argument that in fact that's not true that people are actually are reliably pretty great and that left to their own devices we actually won't all just kill one another we'll actually kind of pull together and do fine things and he makes a really interesting subsidiary point that we harm ourselves and our capacity to work together by teaching people that we are selfish, right? And it's a, you know, it's sort of a negative feedback loop. It'll be a really interesting discussion.
1: Let's get straight to talking with Rutger.
0: My name is Rutger Bregman. I am a Dutch historian and the author of the new book called Humankind, A Hopeful History. Well, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Give us in a, in a few words the basic thesis of your new book. Well, in a few words, it would be something like, deep down, most people are pretty decent. That's it. And um, this is uh, an insight that may sound like, oh, well, this guy has written a, a book about the power of kindness. Well, that's nice and wonderful, but also quite, you know, it's not really a threat to anyone. But actually, it's a really subversive idea if you really think it through. Because throughout history, a more cynical view of human nature has been used by those in power to legitimize power differences and hierarchy. And if you say that people are actually, well, maybe not angels, I mean, we're not fundamentally good, clearly we're not. But that we are uh, inclined to cooperate and that we can actually trust each other. Yeah, then the question is, why do we still need all these CEOs and managers and kings and... Princes and princesses, and you name it. Maybe we don't need them anymore. So it's a really, really subversive idea.
1: So you know, on our podcast, we have spent a lot of time basically destroying the idea of Homo economicus. Rucker, you you've actually coined a a new term to describe the human species, <laughs> uh, a Homo puppy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> explain.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I'll hope I'll I'll be remembered for that by you know, in the, <laughs> <laughs> by history and that i'll go down in the annals of science but you know my my expectations are not high now the reason why i talk about this whole concept of homo puppy is that because there's this new fascinating theory in evolutionary anthropology and biology which is called self-domestication now we all know what domestication is right domestication is this process where you turn wolves into chihuahuas or, you know, you've got dogs or, or pigs or cows, etc. And they, they've been selected for centuries uh, for friendliness and for tameness. Now, we've also long known that if you domesticate animals, then certain things start to happen. You see a, a list of traits that arise. So, for example, these, these animals get thinner bones, smaller brains. They got uh, like a droopy, floppy ears. And... Um, and uh, most interestingly, they just start to look friendlier and more puppyish. You get—it's like this puppyification of of animals. And then, if you look at this list, and also at the genes that are that are associated with domestication, and then you look at us, at human beings, you arrive at this fascinating insight that actually we look like we've been domesticated. Now, the question is obviously who has domesticated us, and the answer is we did it ourselves. Uh, another way to uh, describe this is to say that uh, there's been this process of survival of the friendliest, which means that for millennia it was actually the friendliest among us who had the most kids and so had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. Because if you wanted to survive in the Ice Age, you know, you could collect possessions, but that was not what's going to save you. You you needed friends. You needed to collect friends to, yeah, to be able to rely on and um yeah so that's uh, that's the new theory from biology and we've got you know very powerful evidence for it if you look at skeletons for example of 50 40 30 20 10,000 years ago you really see this process that we yeah it's the purification of of humanity
2: you know there's a parallel thought that we've been developing and it's uh, conciliant with the i think your the other point of your book which is that if you teach people that people are Selfish and horrible, they will become more selfish and horrible. Yes, correct. Yes. <laughs>
1: uh, right. If if you if you take an economics course, you yeah. will become more selfish and horrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Right. Literally, literally. This is wonderful evidence. Robert Frank, the economist, yeah. did these studies where he literally found that you know, as students progress in their studies. And, you know, if they study standard neoliberal or neoclassical, whatever you want to call it, economics, they become more selfish in in these these experiments. They start behaving like, uh, or sort of these theories create the kind of people that they presuppose.
2: That's right. And, you know, the parallel argument that we have been developing is, um, and again, there's a ton of evidence for it, that if you embed the idea in human societies that, people are fundamentally selfish, and then they look around the world at all of the prosperity in it, they cannot but conclude that selfishness is the cause of prosperity. Mm -hmm. And the more selfish we are, the more prosperity we create. And there you have neoliberalism, Yeah. yeah, (laughs) right? And that this creates a feedback loop of terrible behavior, uh, yeah. which is highly corrosive both to prosperity but also to human societies. Yes. And that on the contrary, if you understand as as science now shows, that people actually are fundamentally good, that we have evolved over millions of years to be cooperators. It's 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 our only superpower really, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. then it's cooperation and kindness that are the cause, the source of prosperity instability in human lives and that is a super subversive idea
0: Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) ideas are never merely ideas stories are never merely stories we humans we tend to become the stories that we tell ourselves and this was also the fundamental mistake that an economist like milton friedman made in the 50s he wrote a very influential essay where he said you know we shouldn't judge economists on you know whether their theories are When we look at their theoretical assumptions, we just should look at the results, right? So, if I have a certain theory and then it turns out that in reality my predictions, you know, come to pass, then you know, then probably the theory was right. But what he forgot there is that if you start believing in something, then it can actually become true. So, if you believe that most people are fundamentally selfish, as the neoliberals do, then you'll start designing your whole society around that idea: your schools, your workplaces the way your democracy is organized, even your prisons police and police force. Yeah, exactly. And it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. And this is uh, something that's been happening in Western history for centuries.
2: And economics is simply a set of stories and ideas. It's not like physics,
0: yeah, right? Yeah.
2: Where uh, force equals mass times acceleration, no matter what you want to believe. One of the things that got you to write this book which I found just absolutely fascinating was your discovery of the real Lord of the Flies, right? Tell us that story.
0: Well, a big part of the book is about debunking veneer theory. Veneer theory, it's a concept from Franz De Waal, the great primatologist, and he uses this t- to describe an old idea in Western culture, which says that civilization is only a very thin veneer, a thin layer, and that just below the surface there's a Nazi in each and every one of us. There's a monster or a savage, right? That deep down we're just selfish. And it's only like something small that needs to happen, a small change in our circumstances, and we quickly reveal who we really are. And this idea has been so deeply embedded in our science, in our literature, in our music. You you just find it everywhere. And one of the most famous expressions, I think, of veneer theory in the 20th century has been the novel Lord of the Flies, written by William Golding, published in 1954. It's a story about a group of kids that end up on an uninhabited island. And even though, you know, they're from a really good British boarding school, they're very well behaved and there's, there seems to be nothing wrong with them, they quickly turn into savages. And at the end of the novel, three of the kids are dead. And the message basically is freedom is dangerous people can't handle it here you have these very innocent kids and they very quickly turn into monsters so this is this is where evil comes from it's just below the surface now for the book i was interested in the very simple question whether it had ever happened you know is there one case in all of world history where real kids shipwrecked on a real island and well maybe we can see what what really happened and uh yeah it turns out after a couple of months of research i did actually managed to find one case. In 1965, near Tonga, which is an island group in the Pacific Ocean, um, six kids shipwrecked on a small island called Ata. Um, they were also part of a British boarding school or an Anglican boarding school, sorry, I should say. And uh, They were bored. They didn't like the school meals. They said, you know, we're going to go on an adventure. But already in the first night that they went on the sea, they ended up in a storm, drifted for eight days, shipwrecked and survived for 15 months on this on this lonely island. For 15 months, pretty extraordinary. And how did they survive? Well, by staying friends. So yeah, sometimes they did end up in fights, but then one will go to one side of the island, the other will go to the other side of the island. They will cool off a little bit, come back and say sorry. They worked in teams, two to cook, two to tend to the garden, two to be on the lookout. At one point, one of the boys even broke a leg. Well, they healed that with traditional medicine. It's just this extraordinary story that in every single way, is the opposite of the fictional *Lord of the Flies. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that this is a scientific experiment. It's obviously not. But I am saying that if millions of kids around the globe still have to read the novel, then maybe we should also tell them about the one time that we know of that actual <laughs> kids, real kids, really <laughs> shipwrecked on a lion because something completely different happened. I think one of the most important uh, stories that I try to tell here in the book is, um, is about the Stanford Prison Experiment. Right. Because this is another... I think another example of a near theory, uh, this was in the early 70s, Philip Zimbardo, the most important living psychologist right now. He's just extraordinarily famous. He talks to crowds of like, I don't know, five, 6,000 6, people whenever he's invited. And his Stanford prison experiment ended up in all the textbooks of all the psychology students around the globe. Uh, just basically everyone knows it. It goes viral every now and then. There have been multiple documentaries about it. It's this... Yeah, super viral thing, and um, I used to believe in it as well. I really did. I I've written books that, luckily, have not been translated into English, where I again, you know, talked about the Stanford Prison Experiment. For those who don't know, maybe this is not necessary, but let me do it anyway. So, Stanford Prison Experiment: you have twenty-four students. You know, again, you know, very nice kids. Um, some of them call themselves pacifists. Uh, they're clearly these liberal hippies. Uh, They sign up for an experiment at uh, Stanford University. And what Philip Zimbardo says is, okay, 12 of you are going to be guards. 12 are going to be prisoners. I'm going to put you in in this fake prison in the basement of Stanford University. And the guards will have uniforms and they'll have the power to do whatever they want. The standard story says that very quickly these guards turned into monsters. You know, they started behaving in a very nasty, sadistic way. And the experiment had to be canceled after, what is it, six days. This story, you know, became incredibly famous, like all the newspapers around the globe reported on it. And it's been used so many times for by so many people to explain basically human evil in the world. Well, look at the Stanford Prison Experiment Then we say. What we now know, actually, because the archives have recently opened up, is that the whole experiment, and I really don't think there's another way to put this. The experiment is a hoax. It really is a hoax. So we now know that Philip Zimbardo specifically instructed his students to behave as nasty and sadistic as possible. That many of those students said that they didn't want to do that, that they said, you know, we can just, I don't know, play cards or make music together and have a good time. Then Zimbardo said, no, 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 you don't understand. I need these results for the study because then we can go to the press and say, look, prisons are horrible environments. We need to reform the whole thing. And uh, come on, you're a liberal hippie. You want to help me with this? And so then some went along. And then very quickly after the experiment, uh, Zimbardo went to the press and it became this huge thing. But for 50 years, we've been, I don't know, telling this. Like, I, I asked a French researcher, who's, Thibault Le Textier, who's done really the most important work here. He's written a book called The History of a Lie. It's, it's only available in French, but uh, he's, he's really the one who's done the, the important work. And uh, I asked him, you know, is there still something we can learn from the Stanford Prison Experiment? And he said, yes, I think we can. It's a pretty perfect summary of everything that can go wrong in science. So uh, there you go.
1: It's also, by the way, I think the the best example of the thesis in your book, uh, because he actually wanted to reform prisons. Hmm. And he chose to do it by attempting to prove the conventional story that we're horrible, cruel, violent, vicious animals, when in fact you could have gone the other way and tried to prove that, no, no, we're more like homo puppy, and that our prison system goes entirely against our nature.
0: Yeah, this was a really interesting moment in U.S. history. You know, At the time, there were experiments with really extraordinary prisons, like they have in Norway right now. I, I talk about that in the book. So in Norway, you have these prisons where... The guards socialize with the prisoners. They often don't even wear uniforms. And the prisoners have the freedom to, well, make music, have a good time together. They take care of their own community. They uh, have their own music label, which is called Criminal Records. It's really uh, pretty bizarre if you if you first heard about it. But then you look at the the results, the statistics, and turns out that Norway has the most effective criminal justice system in the whole world. Lowest recidivism rate, lowest chance that someone will commit another crime once he or she gets out of prison. And then you look at the history of this idea, and actually, it starts in the US. So it was in the US that the first experiments with these kind of prisons were done. But what happened is that there was a group of uh, liberals, or maybe I should say radical leftists, who were sort of completely against prisons at all. They basically wanted to abolish the whole prison system, uh, because they thought that they were inherently nasty, corrupting places. And... There was also this researcher called Robert Martinson, who read this big report, or was one of the co-authors. It's called the Martinson Report, you know, 1,200 pages of, of research. But he wrote a short summary that was called What Works? And his answer was, well, nothing works. Prisons just don't work. They, you can't reform criminals. You just can't do it. So let's just abolish the whole thing. And then what happened was, was it was a very dark irony. Conservatives took, took over that argument. So conservatives said, "Yes, indeed, nothing works. So let's just lock them up and throw away the key." And so basically, the the road for you know the very harsh environment, the criminal, very terrible criminal justice system um, that was created in the eighties after Reagan had uh, you know it rose to power. Sort of the road was paved by these radical leftists like Philip Zimbardo and and Robert Martinson. It's a, it's, I think it's a fascinating history. A, a little bit similar, by the way, to the, the history of universal basic income. That was also almost implemented in the United States at the beginning of the 70s. But then it went in a very different direction. As a historian, I'm, I'm always fascinated by, by these stories because there are so many, I don't know, uh, uh, weird things and surprises and things that don't turn out to be the way you expect them to.
1: Well, America has a long and rich history of failed prison reform experiments, Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) starting with the the Quakers uh, and the Eastern State Penitentiary and their
0: their experiment with solitary confinement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and now you have these prisons that are basically universities for crime. So very expensive taxpayer institutions, and you bring in people for small drug offenses, and uh, you lock them up for a very long time and you make criminals out of them. That's basically what you do. You ask the taxpayer to fund the education of criminals. In Norway, they have the opposite. So they bring in people as criminals and they cr- make taxpaying, law-abiding uh, citizens with jobs out of them. <laughs> that, that's what they do. It's, uh, it's the economics of that system is really interesting. There was recently a, a paper that was published by two Norwegian and two American economists where they looked into the financial side of the Norwegian prison system. And they found that every bit of money that they invest in the in the system, there they get it back with a double double the rate of return. So they get it back twice. It's really really fascinating because they just they save so much money in terms of you know what they have to spend on healthcare or benefits or whatever because they create these people who have a forty percent higher chance of finding a job. Well, that's a pretty great system. There was there was a group of American prison uh, officials who went to a trip to Norway one from North Dakota. And, uh, you know, initially they were very skeptical, but then they looked at the system and they looked at the numbers. And even these, you know, very conservative people said, you know, yeah, it's just more practical. So (laughs) this a wonderful quote from someone who said, I'm not a liberal, but this is just more practical. I love that line.
1: So what does this say to the moment now in the US with the calls for uh, defunding the police and, you know, carceral reform? Does it lead you to think that we can we can and should vastly reform our criminal justice system here?
0: Well, I completely understand the call for defund the police because there's a long history of talking about community policing and talking about courses for, I don't know, racial awareness and profiling, ethnic profiling awareness and blah, blah, blah. And it hasn't really delivered. And then if you look at, you know, the kind of money that the u.s spends on what what we call guard labor you know security prison a bit of the army as well and then compared to other countries it's just ridiculous what a real good really good police officer should be is a kind of social worker you know where you just you just know the people in your community you know the grandfathers and the aunts and the uncles and people like you and they trust you so that when there's really something bad that happens, when there's serious crime, that they can be your allies, you know, they can give you valuable information. But yeah, the US system is all about seeing a potential criminal in each and everyone. And I mean, we earlier talked about the self-fulfilling prophecy. If you look at other people like savages, then, well, you're going to behave like a savage. <laughs> That's basically what you're going to do. I mean, if, if there's a crowd of peaceful protesters and you show up in riot gear, what do you expect? Right. So Rutger, uh, you know, I'm,
2: super sympathetic to the core of your argument people are mostly good
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know for my own part i see human beings homo sapiens as falling on different kinds of continuums from you know everybody everybody is different and people have different kinds of personalities and it is indeed true that we have tons and tons of most people are fundamentally decent fundamentally honest fundamentally cooperative but you know, we also have our Donald Trumps, people mm-hmm. who are mm-hmm. people who are horrible people and who are narcissistic sociopaths. Yeah. So how do we organize human societies to maximize the good stuff and minimize the bad stuff?
0: Okay. So a couple of things. In Dutch, my book is called Most People Are Pretty Decent. So, so focus on the most. Not all people are pretty decent. Right. <laughs> uh, I think that's important to recognize. Right. And yes. People who are inherently trusting, and that's what we are. We have this, what psychologists call, truth-the-fault bias. We just are quickly inclined to believe and trust each other. Uh, and that is exactly what makes us so successful. I mean, imagine a society where we distrust each other all the time. Where, I don't know, you're at a dinner table and someone says, pass me the salt. And you're like, well, let me consult my lawyer, you know, and let's draw up a contract and then see. You know, that's that would be a very ineffective society. So trust is just economically practically so much more efficient than distrusting other people this is actually one of the things that i as a dutchman dislike a little bit about the us i mean i do interviews and then they sent me this release form afterwards (laughs) which is absolutely ridiculous i mean what do you think why do you think i just gave the interview because you have to release it right but i don't know that's sort of the It seems to me a sort of a sign of distrust that you think that, I don't know, I'm supposedly going to sue someone. Um, It's not very effective and it's a huge waste of time. So nomadic hunter-gatherers already knew that even though most people can be trusted, you have to be wary of the sociopaths, of the Donald Trumps, basically. Now imagine Donald Trump in prehistory, because we were for 95% of our history, we were nomadic hunter-gatherers. Well, I think that anthropologists would agree that Donald Trump wouldn't have survived for a long time. No, no, no. Uh, they would have. People wouldn't would have liked him. They would have yeah. chucked him in the river. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, he wouldn't have had a lot of friends. So the most likely scenario was that he would just have died alone and you, you just can't survive. So he would have gone hungry and then died alone. If it would have been really nasty, then indeed he would have been expelled from the group. If he would have started killing other people, then he would have been executed by the group at some point. That's what we know from... Uh, anthropologists who've, you know, uh, studied uh, nomadic and together tribes around the globe. And there are really striking similarities. There are also big differences here. So obviously it's a controversial way. It's very hard to know how we lived 20 or 30,000 years ago. But I still think that this is convincing um, because it's um, you see it in all these different societies whether you know we're talking about the north of alaska or the kalahari desert near namibia you see this pattern again and again that these these nomadic and together societies are quite egalitarian and humbleness is so so important so if you are a leader in such a society you have to you know be self-depreciating all the time Uh, and and if you're a fantastic hunter then uh, you come back with a i don't know some some great prize or I don't know if you just uh, killed a deer or something like that or gazelle and um, then someone asks you well did you catch anything today and then you say no no not really and then that person would know oh you know tonight's going to be a feast you know uh, we're going to have a great dinner Um, obviously we've now ended up in a very different kind of society where it's not survival of the friendliest often but it seems to be survival of uh, the shameless which is yeah pretty much the opposite. And that is, I think, a real indictment of our current, what we call democratic system, but that I would call an elective aristocracy. And uh, the reason that this happens is, I think, because a very fundamental force that psychologists have known about for a very long time, which is uh, called uh, the corruption of power. We just know that power is an incredibly dangerous drug. uh, And any sane society needs to be very, very wary of this.
2: Yeah. Interesting. So where do we go from here? What's your prescription for the future?
0: I think we have to go back to the simple insight that what you assume in each other is what you get out of each other. So if it's true that we've designed a society in the past, I don't know, 40 to 50 years, especially in this era that we call the neoliberal era, where so many of our institutions, our schools, democracies, workplaces were, were, were based on the dogma that people are just selfish and that we have to deal with it then maybe we can turn that around. And maybe we could start building different kind of schools and workplaces that start with an assumption of trust. And in my book, I just try to give a couple of case studies. I don't think we should think in blueprints. So what may work here may not work there. Uh, but yeah, there are a lot of really exciting examples uh, to look at. I've got one example of an organization in the Netherlands that is called Buurtzorg, which translates as something like neighborhood care. Um, and it was founded in 2006, started with two self-directed teams of nurses, uh, like 12, 13 uh, nurses in a team. And uh, the founder, Joste Block decided to basically not work with any management. Now it's an organization with 15,000 employees, voted five times employer of the year, deliver, delivering higher quality health care for a che- uh, cheaper price. And paying the employees a higher salary as well. It's like win, 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 win. And the simple philosophy of this organization is all about trust, trust, trust. So uh, let people, let professionals do their job. Uh, They hire their own colleagues. They decide for themselves what additional education they need. They have got this internal online platform where they sort of share expertise and knowledge. Uh, it's really an interesting model, and I think it it's just so exciting what can happen in an organization if you actually say, hey, wait a minute, maybe I'm not supposed to be this manager high up in the tower trying to make things happen. Maybe that's not what real leadership or real management has to look like. Maybe another company that I looked at, they called it reverse management. So there are the idea is that actually managers don't do anything unless they're asked to by the self-directed teams, you know? Uh, sort of the upside down of, of the, the, the current hierarchical model that we often have. Again, we shouldn't think in blueprints, but we can experiment, I think, in this direction.
1: We've come to the end of our, our time with you, Rutgers. Is there uh, any particular point you think we've missed here that that you'd like to make?
0: Oh, well, if uh, if people say, hey, but wait a minute, this, this sounds a little bit naive, this sounds a little bit romantic, then I always reply that, Actually, what I'm trying to do in my book is to redefine what it means to be a realist. So often when we say, oh, you got to be a bit more realistic, we say, you've got to be a bit more pessimistic, or be, more, be a bit more cynical. But I think that actually the cynics are really naive, and the cynics are intellectually and practically lazy. Uh, cynicism is another word for laziness. Uh, so I think that we should move to a new realism. Uh, that's what the book is all about.
2: Cynicism is a form of laziness. I love
0: that. Hear <laughs> that, Goldie? Uh, I'm not a cynic.
2: I'm a skeptic.
0: <laughs> There's a difference. That's. I totally agree. That's an important difference. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of cynics hide, you know, behind the, yeah, the you know, right. the, the mean, label I'd, of "I'm a skeptic." No, you're actually a w- cynic.
1: W- if if we were all true cynics, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing. That's
0: huh.
2: true.
1: <laughs> so try, trying to change the story. And and we thank you, Rucker, because uh, your, your books have been great. Your public contributions have been tremendously helpful towards changing the, the narrative out there.
0: Thanks, man.
2: Thank you for being with us today.
0: Thanks for having me, guys. Until next time.
2: I think that one of the most interesting things I learned from Rutgers' book in this conversation is what a thin veneer, uh, veneer theory is. <laughs> veneer theory, which is something, by the way, I'd never heard of until. Well, you Rut-
1: heard of it, you just didn't know the yeah,
2: name. Yeah, that's right. I had absolutely incorporated that idea into my worldview. In all sorts of conscious and unconscious ways, and it is really fascinating when you pause and realize that most of the available evidence shows that, in the absence of constraint, people tend towards cooperation and the good.
1: You know, for me, one of the things he he mentioned was uh, trust. This idea that we operate on trust, and most people can be trusted. And when we have this story that says, oh, no, 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 you can't trust anybody. You got to sign that release form uh, after you do that podcast interview. You know, from an economic perspective, uh, the thing about trust is that it lowers transaction costs. Correct. And that if we tell this story that you can't trust anybody, well, then that increases uh, transaction costs in society because now you have to have a contract for every single relationship. Whereas in a truly cooperative economy, which is what we believe the market fundamentally is, the more trusting people are, the lower the, the costs of running that economy and the better off everybody is.
2: That's right. And this is why, for instance, companies run by leaders who have huge amounts of integrity tend to outcompete companies run by jerks. Because <laughs> you know, in a company that's run by people with lots and lots of integrity, everybody trusts one another. You know, it's like rocket fuel for a competitive organization. You know, when people trust one another, it makes getting stuff done so much easier. If we want to tackle the greatest challenges of our times, we do absolutely, as Rutger says, need to completely start with a, a review uh, of uh, human nature. And if we get that right, Uh, a lot of our policies, politics, and practices will be more right in the end. So Goldie, in our next episode, we get to talk to the prescient Stephanie Kelton of modern monetary theory uh, fame, uh, who is getting to see her theory (laughs) Uh, Explored in real time in the United States by the very people who derided her as a charlatan. Right. Well, we'll be talking to Stephanie about her new book, The Deficit Myth, uh,
1: a little bit about the applications of MMT in the real world, and also, Nick, the most cogent and persuasive argument for a federal jobs guarantee I've ever heard. So looking forward.